This is Archive Atlanta, episode 115, Scottish Atlanta. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. So this week we're talking about Atlanta's love of Scotland. Unlike the Chinese community that I did an episode about, there wasn't exactly a Scottish settlement or a specific neighborhood, but Scots did immigrate to the Atlanta area, so I'll explain why. But aside from those immigrants, there was also an infatuation with Scotland, and especially poet Robert Burns. So this week, we're going to cover all of these Scottish history rabbit holes that I found myself in and construct the story of Scottish Atlanta. I am not ashamed to admit that my knowledge of Scotland comes mainly from watching Outlander, Okay, totally from watching Outlander. But ironically, one of my best friends moved to Scotland last year. So now I get to confirm what I've learned from the TV with real life data. And my hope is that once the pandemic is over, I can go visit her and see this all for myself. But often in my history research, I run across mentions that are small. So I kind of put them in this list of stuff to look up later, like things like the Atlanta Jockey Club was a thing. And so sometimes I look those up and you know they don't really have a story or they're short-lived. But this is what happened when I came across the Atlanta Scottish Association. And I've talked about this before, but I have a soft spot for cultural organizations, as my parents were part of one in New York, composed of people from their specific region of Spain. And so I grew up with these memories of dinners and dances and cultural performances and marching in parades. And I know what a special connection it is for new immigrants to find this safe place of familiarity and comfort. So the Atlanta Scottish Association piqued my interest, and then that led me to this broader story of Scottish Americans in Atlanta. To start, let's talk about Scottish immigration to America. Mostly beginning in the 1730s, it peaked just after the Jacobite Rising of 1745, which broke up the traditional clan structure of the Highland Scots. Promises of a better life called to them from the new American colonies, so many crossed the ocean. And the Scots were also world-famous stonemasons. And did you know they worked on the White House? When it was being planned, the commissioners admired Scottish stonemason work so much that they had seven Scottish people imported to the U.S. Now, this was illegal because way more complicated story, but it was um, there was a ban on migrating laborers from Scotland and other countries in Europe at the time. Georgia has really strong ties to Scotland, specifically Highlanders, who tended to cluster together in settlements and maintain their language and cultural traditions. By 1736, the first Scottish Highlanders arrived in the British colony of Georgia, and they settled on the banks of the Altahama River. They called this place New Inverness, but it would later be known as Darien, Georgia. Now, these people had been recruited, kind of similar to the White House, and they were selected by the representatives of the colony and James Oglethorpe to protect the colony. Oglethorpe reportedly wanted men who were, quote, accustomed to hardship militant in nature, and willing to become frontier farmer soldiers, end quote. Between 1735 and 1748, hundreds of young men and their families immigrated here to protect the frontier of Georgia. Atlanta was not incorporated as a city until 1845, and honestly, that was Marthasville, so really 1847 for Atlanta. But I want to talk about Lithonia for one second. If you don't know Lithonia, it's a city in DeKalb County, close to Stone Mountain, also Arabia and Panola Mountains. And the city there began in 1805 as a small farming community. But once the railroad came 40 years later, the granite quarrying industry exploded. And these stonecutters were Scottish. They would arrive in Lithonia for the winter, avoiding Scotland's cold winter, and then they would leave in the hot southern summer to go back to Scotland to work in the quarries there. 
They even had a soccer team called the Stonecutters. There have been lots of amazing articles. Um, I think the DeKalb History Center has put out some of this, so it's a, it's a great history. So my assumption is that a few of these Scots made their way to Atlanta, but along with other people who had moved directly to Atlanta. So while the Scottish Association does not form until after the turn of the century, we have two other social groups centering around Scotland and its people and traditions. By 1875, we see the first mentions of the Burns Club. This is a whole history rabbit hole I found extremely fascinating, and I also still don't quite understand. Robert Burns was a Scottish poet and lyricist and the unofficial national poet of Scotland. He is most famous for a poem that is now the song we sang on New Year's Eve, Auld Lang Syne. Um, because he wrote mainly in English, it made his work really accessible across the globe in the 18th century, and he's regarded as a pioneer of the Romantic movement. After he died in 1796, he became an inspiration to the founders of liberalism and socialism, and just a general cultural icon in Scotland, and pretty much anyone of Scottish descent living across the globe. But what confuses me, and I didn't quite find an answer, is that the Burns obsession crosses all cultures. So while it was heavily men, and I think that was just the patriarchal nature of the time, it wasn't just Scottish men. Uh, and you'll see in Atlanta, it was actually led and ran forever by a Jewish man. So it was, I don't know, I don't know if the Burns obsession crossed over or it was just an excuse to join a men's social club, but there was definitely a lot of Robert Burns fans. The first Burns Club meetings date back to 1801, which were five years after his death, when a group of his friends got together to celebrate his birthday at his birthplace in Scotland. Soon after this, Burns Clubs began popping up all over the world, with Atlanta attempting to form the one in 1875, like I said. At that time, it was led by Dr. J.M. Johnson, Dr. Rauschenberg, and Colonel L.E. Bleckley, who was called an essayist. And its mission was to, quote, promote social and literary enjoyment, end quote. These men met in a room at the Chamber of Commerce, where they had M.W. Mackle sing, Old Scotland, I Love Thee. Now, sadly, this group did not keep up their meetings. So I don't know if they met once or twice, but this references completely disappear. And they do not reappear until 1896. In 1882, there were 395 recorded Scottish-born people in the state of Georgia. We do not know how many lived in Atlanta, but we did have a Caledonian society here. What is Caledonia, you ask? I know I did. It is the Latin name for Great Britain and most of Scotland during the Roman Empire. But in more modern usage, it kind of became a poetic name for Scotland. I actually found a map from 1899 where there was a house on Trinity Avenue downtown. Um, at this point, it was still called Peter Street, and it was labeled the Caledonia House. Weirdest thing is that the Caledonia House does not come up in the papers. It does not come up in the directory. But, you know, okay, I guess you can't solve every history mystery. There was, though, the Atlanta Caledonian Society. They met early on at Concordia Hall, and they first celebrated St. Andrew's Day in 1884. And St. Andrew's Day is a national holiday in Scotland, celebrating the patron saint of the country. Two years later, they upgraded to celebrating at De Gives Opera House, and the newspaper lists that all of the members of Scottish descent are present. In 1891, St. Luke's was holding St. Andrew's Day celebrations, and then after the turn of the century, this becomes a much more religious holiday and kind of less about Scottish people and Scottish pride, but they did continue to celebrate it for many decades. A new Burns Club formed officially in 1896, and it began with a celebration of the 137th anniversary of Robert Burns' birthday with a banquet at the Aragon Hotel. 
Dr. Joseph Jacobs, who owned the pharmacy where Coca-Cola was sold, was a huge Burns fan. And he actually owned a bust of Burns that was found in New York City or something. And he had it shipped to Atlanta, so he was showing it off to everybody. Um, other members of the club include both Scots and non-Scots alike. In that year and the following years, the Burns Club would celebrate the poet's birthday, January 25th, in a host of different places. They would have it at the home of its members, they would have it at the Gould Building, at the Kimball House, and then in 1899, Lily McWhorter was elected the only female member. She was actually the daughter of like, one of the co-founders, and apparently she would sing for the club, so I don't know if it was honorary, if she was actually allowed to hang out, but we did have a woman for a second. By 1901, the club had up to 100 members, led by President Joseph Jacobs and Vice President Hamilton Douglas. And they are consistent. They celebrate each Burns birthday every year for the next few decades. And they also add in large picnic events throughout the summer. In 1905, Lithonia finally gets its own Burns Club, and they would celebrate what they call Dogwood Days. So we all know Dogwood season, but when the trees would bloom, the Atlanta Club would go out to Lithonia for a picnic every year. 1905 is also the same year that one of the founding members, James McWhorter, died. He had come from Scotland to New Jersey to work in stone contracting. Then he moved to Chicago for a moment and finally Atlanta to do the marble at the Equitable Building. He was later superintendent of the Georgia Marble Company and he worked on Atlanta's iconic buildings, the Carnegie Library, the Candler Building, and the Gives Opera House. Speaking of Carnegie, the most famous Scot in America, was invited by the Burns Club to attend their celebration in 1906, and Andrew replied with a very thoughtful, like, I'll try to make it, but I don't know if I can. So this made, this made big news in the newspapers. In January of 1907, club member Eugene Oberdorfer suggested that the Burns Club should incorporate and they should find a permanent place to call home. The response was unanimously enthusiastic, and so Dr. Jacobs jumped to lead the charge. Just months later, the group had purchased 10 acres near the old soldier's home on Confederate Avenue. By 1910, they choose to sell a chunk of four acres to fund the landscaping of the remaining land, as well as to start construction of the cottage. Hiring architect Thomas H. Morgan, who was also a member, I think, the group obtained special plans directly from Scotland to recreate the home that Robert Burns lived in the only exact replica in the United States. Overall, construction was led by member and Scotsman R.M. McWhorter, and the cornerstone was laid on a rainy day. They once again invited Andrew Carnegie to the ceremonies, but he declines. But inside this cornerstone, they placed old coins, member cards, and a full history of the Atlanta Burns Club. Now, when they built this, so this is today Or Ormwood Park, and if you do not know, the old soldier's home is now where the state police facility is. And when they created this um, cottage, they also created Alloway Place and Air, A-Y-R, definitely said that wrong. Um, these are still roads in Ormwood Park today, although be warned, only one of them is paved. Like I said, the cottage is an exact replica. It's made of stone. It has like a thatched roof. The interior of the cottage has two rooms, which is what it looked like. So one of them is like a bedroom. It has a fireplace with a kitchen and then bunk beds, one for parents, one for kids. And the other room is like, I mean, I think maybe you'd modernly call it a living room, but it was also sort of just like the family space to hang out. Now in Scotland, there would be a part of the home that would have been a barn where the animals were kept. So in Atlanta, what the group did was created their meeting space in this section. 
By January of 1911, just in time to celebrate Burns' birthday, the cottage was ready and open. The first dinner menu was written completely in Scottish dialect. I will not embarrass myself by trying to read it to you. Lucien Lamar Knight gave an address and highlighted all of Scotland and Scottish people's contribution throughout America. By March, the club received word that there was a patch of ivy growing in a yard in Noonan, Georgia, that was planted from a sprig obtained from Scotland from the original Burns home. So Joseph Jacobs takes his personal car, runs down to Noonan, digs it up himself, and apparently he was the one that also wielded the shovel at the Burns cottage to plant it. And this was such a big deal. They had someone checking on this little seedling every day, and they would report back to everybody who was growing. By March of 1912, we get the establishment of the Atlanta Scottish Association. Together, the McWhorters, the McDougals, the McElroys, and the McGregors founded the organization along with a few other Scottish men. So I find this funny because we have a Burns Club that has existed for more than 20 years at this point, but the members are, like I said, they're more fans of Burns and fans of Scotland than actual Scots. And I, I picture like the Scots of Atlanta getting together to bemoan and phone their own little club, but what history tells us is there was zero animosity whatsoever. The Scots continued to belong to both organizations, and they used the Burns Cottage as their meeting space in later years. Of course, Andrew Carnegie is made the first honorary member of the Atlanta Scottish Association, and he sends a signed letter of thanks. It has about 60 local members, and they meet on the first Friday of the month, and then originally they met in the Knights of Pythias Hall in the Kaiser Building. By July, they are hosting large-scale picnics at Grant Park that involve sports tournaments. So imagine 300 rowdy Scottish men and women performing things like the 100-meter dash. There was lots of food, lots of dancing, and something called sword dancing. The following year, big news arrives that Harry Lauder will be in Atlanta to perform at the Atlanta Theater. I know it's hard to comprehend the stardom of the 19-teens, but Harry Lauder was a Scottish singer, comedian, and vaudeville superstar. He was internationally famous, and he was very much considered an ambassador for Scotland. So I don't know if he was the only famous person from Scotland, but he popularized wearing kilts, using the twisted walking stick, especially in America. So Lauder also happens to be childhood besties of Arthur Craig who was the Scottish Association's chieftain. And Atlanta Scots are, like, so excited. So imagine, like, you grew up with Beyonce, and she came to play in Atlanta, and you met her at the show to, like, show her around. It's the same thing. People are just, all they could talk about is how Craig and Harry Lauder grew up together. When Harry first gets to Atlanta, he visits the Burns Cottage. Then he goes out to Lithonia to visit what they called, quote, the Scottish Colony which they touted being 40 to 50 men strong, and then the women take his wife out separately to have lunch at the Georgian Terrace. Just months after Lauder's visit, the Scottish Association says they want to build their own home, just like the Burns Club did. But that never comes to fruition, so someone mentions it, and they never get to do it. They do go on to establish a sick and death benefits pool, and Carnegie sends a $100 check for that. They also begin to celebrate the anniversary of the Battle of Bannockburn, which was a battle that Scotland won over England, um, and they would continue to celebrate this battle well into the 1920s. Around 1914, as World War I is breaking out in Europe, Arthur Craig and his wife decide to visit Scotland and other parts of Europe for a months-long trip. Craig had come to America about 30 years prior, and he had spent his last 23 years living in the West End. International travel at this time was serious. It involved a train to Savannah, a ship to New York City, and then a ship to Europe. 
and the Burns Club asked Arthur to get the club listed as a member of the Federation of Burns Clubs. And then the Scottish Association was like, hey, when you go there, can you get us something that was called a official Royal Scottish Standard, whatever that is. So because everyone's asking him favors, they all go down to the train station, to terminal station, to see him off. What is amazing is that I got a tour inside the Burns Cottage, and this document, this inclusion of the club into the Federation, is framed inside with the 1914 date. So it was just like a very magical history nerd moment for me. You know, I had read about this thing that he went to get, and then I was seeing the actual document with my own eyes. So the story of the Atlanta Scottish Association doesn't have a clear ending, at least for me and my research. The Atlanta History Center has their club records on file, and they go all the way up to 1990. There was also a woman's auxiliary that operated until about 1979, according to the records. In present-day Atlanta, though, there is a St. Andrew Society of Atlanta, which celebrates Scottish heritage, and there are um, the Highlander Games that go on in Stone Mountain, I think, once a year. The Burns Club, though, is still in full effect. They still own and use their Burns Cottage as a clubhouse, although they haven't met in person since the pandemic. And while I did find a mention and a record of a woman's Burns Club from 1938, I don't know how long that survived because today there are no female members allowed. They're just sometimes guests of their husbands. Now, the Burns Cottage, so some people have passed by it or they live by it. It, um, like I said, it's in Ormwood Park and it is generally open again in the pre-pandemic times. I think Phoenix Flies, it is a participant where once a year it's open and you can go inside. Again, I was so lucky. I was just stalking the building like a weirdo taking pictures and there was a club member there doing groundskeeping and he's like, oh, do you want to go see inside? And I always saw this on the Phoenix Flies list and just didn't think I'd be interested in it, but I was very wrong. So if you have a chance to go, it is really an incredible building. I mean, it's an exact replica of an 18th century cottage. Um, the inside's amazing. So just from that history perspective, and then also, again, from the Atlanta perspective, from the Burns Club history perspective as well. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta Scottish connections, the people, and the social clubs. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.